Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money, and today I have with me Dustin from the Christ and Capital podcast. So I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce yourself, Dustin. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, so I'm, I'm Dustin Johnson, host of uh, the Christ and Capital podcast. Uh, just a podcast I started up as a as a side project because I really like uh, thinking about economics, talking to people about their businesses, you know, innovation, creativity, you know, the philosophy of economics and theology. And so um, that's kind of the gist of it. And we've just been having fun ever since. So that's cool. Yeah. So we are coming together for a two-part episode. Part one will be on my podcast on Theana Money, and then part two will be on Dustin's podcast on Christ and Capital. And we're going to be talking about taxes and just taxation and unjust taxation. But that's going to be more into part two. Part one is going to be building a foundation for the idea of just versus unjust taxes in theonomy and these theonomic concepts of laws and economics and taxation and things like that. Uh, so anything do you have to say on that, Dustin? No, I'm, I, I'm excited. Um, when I first started Christ and Capital, I actually, um, I was just diving into the whole uh, theonomy thing. And so I haven't really dared to go into the depths of this topic yet. Um, I've explored it a little bit on the podcast, but uh, yeah, I'm excited about us getting together and just talking through what we know and what we've learned and hopefully convincing some people to you know, change their minds about the law. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but it just seems like everyone who does a deep dive into Christian economics either already is into this stuff or gets into it eventually. Yeah. It's interesting how like, it, it seems like everyone, or at least a lot of people in the circles that we run in have gone this, this like path of reformed, you know, pre, uh, presuppositionalism what was next uh, post-millennialism or some sort of like eschatological renovation of their, of their thought mm -hmm. processes. And then you get into like, okay, well, how does that apply today? And then that's where you get into the, the theonomy. So. Yeah. All right. So I uh, first wanted to start somewhere that may uh, catch people a little bit off guard starting here for a discussion on theonomy, but I'm going to start by reading Psalm two. Psalm 2 is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, and it actually is one of my favorite texts to do open-air preaching, open-air evangelism from, because there's just so much gospel in Psalm 2. So I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing. It's only 12 verses long, and I am reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. So it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. 
Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Amen. Uh, so I want everyone to notice how with Psalm 2, it talks about nations that are in rebellion against God being crushed by Jesus, by the Son. And then at the end, it talks about people who trust in him, who kiss the Son or pay homage to the Son. It's like showing respect or deference to Jesus are blessed. So we see this being crushed for rebellion or being blessed for obedience. But Psalm 2 isn't just talking about this on an individual level. It's talking about the nations. At the beginning of Psalm 2, it says, why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? And it talks about the kings of the earth, the leaders of these nations. So we're looking at a more national level here. And so what does this mean that nations are crushed if they don't obey Christ? We understand what it means for that to happen to individuals. Everyone is born in sin, and if you don't have Christ's redemption applied to you, if you don't have that great exchange of your sin put on Christ and Christ's righteousness given to you, then you will perish in eternity under God's wrath. We understand that for the individual, but what does that mean for nations? And sure, there is a sense in which this is kind of believing the gospel, not because a nation corporately believes the gospel for its people. That can't happen. In that sense, I'm meaning... If a majority of the of the people within a nation, if the majority of the citizens are believers, then there is in some sense that that's a Christian nation. But, you know, while that might be a little bit of what this is getting at, I think that it's, you know, still a little bit different than what we're seeing here. That's not really 100% the nation being obedient to Jesus just because most of the people in that nation are Christians. So what does it mean about a nation obeying God's commands? Well, that means that we probably see places in scripture where God gives commands to nations as a whole, not just to individuals. And the answer to that question is, yes, we do see God giving commands to nations. And uh, if we look at scripture, where do we see places where God is giving commands to nations to rule rightly, to have just laws to rule in obedience with God and with his word. And there are a few different directions we could go with this, but we want to keep this related to theonomy right now in this podcast episode. So let's look at the commands that God gives to nations and how they govern themselves. That is the commands that God gives to nations and their laws. So before we do a deep dive into that, I want to give two points of background info to help us understand this a little bit better as we go into it. The first is the three spheres of authority. 
the family, the church, and the state or government. And then there's actually a fourth sphere, which is the self, your self-government, your self-management, your self-counsel. Um, I have a minor in biblical counseling, so self-counsel was a really big deal and something we talked about a lot in the biblical counseling movement. So there's really four spheres of authority if you count self, but a lot of times people just say three and they say the church, the family, and the state. So when we're talking about this right now with theonomy, we're talking about that last sphere of authority with the state because the family and the church have rules that God gives them. They have things laid out by God to obey in scripture. With the family, you would think of things like Ephesians 5 between husband and wife. And with the church, there are things like um, passages on Lord's Supper, on communion, or different things about deacons and elders and their roles and responsibilities and the marks that they need to have to rule well. But here we're talking about God's laws as they apply to that third sphere, to the government or the state. If you don't mind me jumping in real quick, I think it's really important um, for us as Christians to think about these jurisdictions because, and we're going to see it when you and I jump over into the discussion about taxation. It's really a discussion about um, authority. Who, you know, what's, who has the authority for what specific things? Um, what is, what's God's design for these spheres and what they're responsible for, what they're going to be held accountable for. And accountability is a really big thing. And so um, I would encourage Christians to get in touch with resources that get you thinking in this way, because that it's going to solve a lot of problems, right? Because like, you're going to, like, we're going to get into the discussion about does the state have the responsibility to care for the poor, right? Does the state have you know, these responsibilities? Does the church have this responsibility to over the sword, for instance? And so you should be thinking about this um, and it really put a lot of this stuff in perspective at least what, from what I'm, I'm learning. Yeah, that's really good what you're just saying there. Um, to explain the, some of that stuff a little bit more, to give some examples, yeah, it really comes down to what authority has God given to each one? And where have we seen, at least here in America, and I'm sure in a lot of other countries, the government start to take responsibilities that belong to the other two roles? Romans 13 tells us that the state is a minister of God to bear the sword, to punish. So that means that if someone is committing a crime, then the state needs to come down on that with whatever punishment is in line with God's word. But not all sins are crimes. If there's a sin you commit that's not a crime, the government shouldn't be punishing you for it. It should be, uh, you know, if a, the father has the responsibility for the family, if it's someone in his household committing that sin, then the father needs to take care of it. Or if the father is the one in sin, then that's where he needs a godly wife who, while still in proper Ephesians 5 order, submitting to her husband is still willing to call him out for his sin. Or the church. That's where you see the, the family and the church are responsible for sins that aren't crimes. The church can practice church discipline, which is not a judicial bearing the sword, but it's more ecclesiological, like relating to the church. And then if it's something that is breaking a law, then the church shouldn't be the one that is judicially, legally punishing the person. That would be the church overstepping its authority. The church needs to do whatever proper church discipline accords to the sin and let the state handle the crime. 
And then also because the state is the minister of the sword and the church is the minister of mercy, the state shouldn't be handling things like welfare. That should be the responsibility of the family and the church. The family, if they see another family in need, tries to help them. And the church, if they see first people in their church in need and second people in the community who aren't part of their church in need, then the church needs to help them. And even go so far as to start parachurch organizations to help them, which many churches have done. But that is not the role of the government. That is the role of the first two spheres of authority, not the third to help the poor. The church or the state, it helps the poor when it punishes criminals who are exploiting the poor, but it doesn't help the poor by directly giving the poor what they need to survive as the family and the church do. Right. Yeah. So that's a little bit on these spheres of authority, which really help us make sure we're keeping things in the right order as we talk about God's law, because this is going to be mainly a discussion of that third sphere of the state or the government. Uh, So that's the first thing I wanted everyone to keep in the back of their head as we talk about that, that first bit of background info. And the second one, I just want to do a bit of a breakdown on the term theonomy in case you're not familiar with it to help you understand it. It comes from two Greek words. A lot of our English language actually comes from Greek or Latin. So it comes from theos and namos. Theos is Greek, is the Greek word for God, and namos is the Greek word for law. So it quite literally is just two Greek words added together to say God's law. Uh, We have a lot of words like that. Deuteronomy, that book of the Bible, that comes from deuteros, namos, the second law, because Deuteronomy is the second time the law was given after it was given previously in the earlier books in the Pentateuch or the Torah. So theos namas just means God's law. We're talking about what God's law has to say when we talk about theonomy. And now some people don't like the word theonomy, but as Doug Wilson has said, if someone asks me if I'm a theonomist, I jokingly say, no, I hate God's law. (laughs) So everyone is a theonomist. It's just who is your theos? That's also basically straight from Doug Wilson. He's a lot smarter than me and he came up with that. But everyone is a theonomist. It's just, who is your God? Is your God the demos, the people? Then you have democracy, not just in the normal sense of democracy, but a little bit more realized than that. Also, historically, democracy has been considered a bad thing by like every philosopher. (laughs) Yeah. Two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's why America uh, was not set up as a democracy. We were set up as a democratic republic or a constitutional yeah, it, republic. It has democratic elements, but it's, it's I, I think, more fundamentally a republic, right? Yeah. It's a representative It's a representative system, just like, and you'll see that all throughout scripture, um, the, the idea of, of headship and being the head or the representative in, in the sense of a covenant or, you know, representation before God. There's this like tiered, system where like the responsibilities flow upward in in the in the hierarchy it's not to say some people are more important than others and all that but there is this system of representation within god's you know the way that god um intends for us as people to to kind of operate with one another yeah and we even see that in uh congress and the president in america Mm because historically one thing one issue that people have with the uh, electoral college is they don't understand that Congress isn't elected the way they used to be. It used to be people directly like in a democratic system elected 
the uh, House of Representatives and then the House and a republic system chose the Senate. And unless I have those backwards, but I think I have that right. And then the idea of the Electoral College is a mixture of democracy and republic, because in a sense, it's each of the people in Congress cast a vote for the president, but they cast the vote in line with who won the popular vote in their state. And yeah. in that sense, I think the Electoral College is actually a kind of brilliant blending of the ideas of republic and democracy together into one. <laughs> it is. It's sad to see where we're going today with our, you know, the sentiments about our founding documents, because they really are brilliant. Mm-hmm. It, um, if you looked all throughout history, it was basically either totalitarianism or radical democracy. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, it doesn't work. That's what communism is, right? It, it, it's either radical totalitarianism or democracy that leads the 51% into subject, you know, um, you know, subjecting the, the 49% to, you know, the whims of the, the 51%. So that, you know, I don't know. I, I think we, we look at the term democracy and we say, yay, good, you know, green check. But that just leads you up to, you know, the, the whims of the people you're, you're, captive to cultural, you know, whatever's going on, the spirit of the age, I guess you'd say. Yeah. All of that was just kind of a big tangent on everyone has a theocracy. It's just who is your theos? Who is your God? Is it the people? Is it demos? Is it the God of scripture? Is it the state is God with statism, which I think is kind of what we see America going into in a lot of ways. And it's definitely what places like communist China are into. Exactly. And, and, um, again, we kind of hit on this just a minute ago, but it's all about authorities. Identify Mm -hmm. who the authority is, right? Who has the authority to do whatever we're talking about in, in the civil realm, taxation or punishment or charity or whatever, who, whose authority is that, but also who gets to decide what laws should be applied? Who, who is the lawgiver? Who's the authority there? Um, if you frame your mind that way, I think you can, uh, we'll, we'll start thinking, uh, more helpfully. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where you kind of start to see that pretty much all of the theonomists are presuppositionalists because <laughs> presuppositionalists recognize, as Van Til would say, God is the back of the universe. God is our epistemological foundation. So yep. we can only get things like logic or even knowledge period from God. Likewise, we can only get our laws from God. We don't have you know, positive laws, as in laws come from the government only. We have, or like rights, positive rights, rights come from the government only, but we have rights coming from God, which is actually what, just a second. (laughs) Had to reach back and grab a book. That's what this book here, which is The Rights Fight by Jay Lucas. It's basically a book about getting to evangelism based on rights and how rights come from God. Rights don't come from the government. Uh, that book was recon- recommended to me by Andrew Rappaport, and he said it's the best book on precept he's ever read. And it's kind of just incidentally a book on precept. It wasn't intended yeah. that way. It's just from that framework. <laughs> That's funny. It all comes out. I mean, it it you know once you've once you've taken the bite or uh, once it's bitten you, it, you know you can't go back. Hmm. Yeah. So all of that as the background to why we think that. It is a better system for laws to be based upon God's law and scripture rather than whatever arbitrary laws man comes up with. Mm -hmm. So let's start looking at what exactly does that look like in more detail rather than just this 
kind of big nebulous yeah god's law yay what does that actually look like what are some of the more foundations of how we think through it right so um before we dive into that i want to say ask one last question uh is god's law applicable to all nations because all this stuff we're talking about is good but is god's law applicable to all nations i would say yes for two reasons one that's why i started with psalm 2 because it says nations in disobedience to jesus will be crushed but those who in, be, in obedience to him will be blessed. And then two, what Dustin was just saying about how God is the divine lawgiver and how laws, rights, logic, all of that only exists because it first exists in the mind of God. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's applicable to all nations because God is Lord over all nations. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Exactly. And if, can I, can I uh, just read this passage real quick from Micah? It's a short passage, yeah. um, but it'll, it'll give some context. So Micah four, I don't have verse one in here, but it's basically the um, verse one says uh, in the, in the end the the nations will stream up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, right? It's got this idea of the nations coming like, like streams being drawn up to the Lord. Right. Um, and it says, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. You see this again in Daniel where it's um, Jesus, the, the, the Messiah, the God, God himself has dominion over the nations of the world that he's been given the nations as an inheritance. Um, and, he, and it says here and in many other places in scripture that his law is what will go forth and conquer the world. His law, uh, uh, I don't remember what passage it is. The coastlands wait for his law, right? In anticipation, waiting for his law to come. So that gives us some context. Like this is important. (laughs) Uh, The law is a good thing. And, uh, and I think it's, it's for all nations as we can see in these passages. If this law wasn't to all nations, then why, when we read of Israel coming in to take over the promised land, does God say that, the nation was spewing out the inhabitants of that land because of their sin. And I'll tell their you sin. what, just like, what every time mean? I, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I said the sin, like he, they're being held to a standard of sin. Mm-hmm. What, who, who decides what the sin is, right? God's the one mm-hmm. that decides what the sin was. That's why the land was spewing them out. Anyways. Go ahead. Yeah. Every time I hear some kind of crazy natural disaster in America, that verse comes to my mind. I'm kind mm-hmm. of just expecting there to be more natural disasters in America than in centuries past of our nation, because I think God will spew out any nation that rebels against him, not just the particular ones in Canaan 3000 years ago. Yeah. Did you hear that one sermon by Rusty Thomas? I don't know if you heard, if you're familiar with Rusty Thomas. Yeah, I'm familiar with him, but I don't know if I heard that sermon. He had a sermon about that, about the land spewing us out. It, mm-hmm. it was fantastic. But anyways, That's cool. uh, continue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I know with that real quick, Darren, who just took over from Rusty Thomas, is a good friend of mine. Darren oh, yeah? Stead, if, if, if you're familiar with him. I'm not, but I, I'm familiar with Rusty Thomas and all that he's doing. So. Yeah, Darren just took over OSA from Rusty Thomas because Rusty's getting old and retiring and stepping back a bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there are basically two ideas with how we can understand God's law today. 
as believers. So that's the first thing I want to get, because I think this is a good foundation to understanding the other stuff, is how much do the Old Testament still apply today, specifically the Old Testament law? So there are two understandings with this. One of them is that everything in the Old Testament law is done away with unless the New Testament restates it and says it's still applicable. This would be more of your new covenant theology or your dispensationalist ideas. Um, some issues with that, though, there are a lot of laws in the Old Testament that we don't see repeated in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't mention them. Paul doesn't mention them. Things like that. Uh, and then also the issue of, for some reason, the Ten Commandments are still applicable, minus the Sabbath, depending on your view on that. But that's one issue with that is, we think that much of the Old Testament law is actually just the Ten Commandments as they applied to the nation of Israel, kind of like the case law, the explaining of the Ten Commandments. So in that sense, you're kind of breaking up the Ten Commandments from their explanation of those same commandments, if you understand it that way. Yeah. Second, I don't really know if you can argue that all of the Ten Commandments are still repeated in the New Testament like that. You probably can. I think there are places where Paul lists about just about all of them. But there's still that issue of there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament that uh, Paul, Jesus, any of the other New Testament authors don't mention. Like the Old Testament has very specific laws against, you know, marriage of close relatives and things like that. And we really don't see any of those laws repeated in the New Testament. There's no there's nothing in the New Testament saying you can't marry your sister-in-law or your cousin or things like that right but there are right. things in the old testament that says that right and we would and we would say that that old testament passage applies like we we would i mean most people would say hey yeah that that shouldn't be allowed like we should not have that um but if you're taking like you're saying this um th this first way of thinking about the law it doesn't say it in the, in the new testament so you know maybe it's applicable but yeah. So that's where I'm thinking if you're taking that idea, you kind of have to contradict your system of hermeneutic a little bit to still apply these laws that we all know are still applicable. Because your mm -hmm. hermeneutic won't allow for you to stay there, say they're still applicable, but you have to because, you know, the work of the law is written in everyone's heart, believer or unbeliever. And then if you are a believer, you not only have the work of the law written in your heart, Romans 2, 14 to 15. But you also have the Holy Spirit as your seal until the day of redemption, until the day of atonement, or, or sorry, the day of judgment, which is from Ephesians 1. Yep. So we all know because of the law in our heart that these things like marrying cousins and stuff like that isn't right anymore. But it's just if you're taking this first understanding of the continuity of the Old Testament, then you're kind of breaking your own hermeneutic to say that yeah. those laws still apply. You're being inconsistent. Yeah. as we pre presuppositionalists would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this is kind of the general understanding in a lot of American evangelicalism because it's kind of the dispensational understanding and dispensationalism has been the predominant view in the United States for the last century. I grew up dispensational. I would say in the past, I would have considered myself more on this understanding of it's all done away with unless the New Testament restates it. Mm -hmm. But just the yeah. more I studied it, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, I grew up the same way. And I think my understanding was even more radical. It was the law doesn't apply anymore. <laughs> it's grace now. It's faith. That's the thing that, uh, you know, it's kind of been replaced by faith. And so 
the, the law has kind of been a victim of this grace faith thing. That's this new thing. Um, but I think as you're going to get into uh, Jesus and Paul, don't allow us to think that way. Yeah. So that this first idea we were looking at, and that, that's going to lead well into this first I'm about to read. That first idea we were looking at that it's all done away with unless leads to this second idea that it's all still applicable unless the New Testament says that it is in some way fulfilled or some sort of good and necessary consequence of something in the New Testament says that it's been fulfilled. And then that relates to the verse you were just hinting at, Matthew 5, 17. And they are near the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So Jesus says plainly there in the Sermon on the Mount, that he did not come to abolish, to do away with the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. So anything in the Old Testament that we we don't obey anymore is not because it's been done away with. It's because it's been fulfilled in Christ. And if it hasn't been fulfilled in Christ, then it's still applicable. Or if the New Testament doesn't give us some reason for not obeying it anymore, like the dietary laws. When Jesus declared all foods clean by saying it's what comes out of the man, not what goes into the man that defiles him. And then also with uh, Peter having the vision of the blanket or whatever it was coming down with all the animals on it. And that was really more about Gentiles being saved than it was about animals being able to be eaten. But that was kind of one of the side points of it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also there's also a a section in in Leviticus in the law that. Um, a lot of theologians would um, refer to as the holiness code. Um, and so you'll see it, when you're talking with un- unbelievers about this, you're, you're going to get this pushback of like, you know, the, the typical, like you wear clothes with two different fabrics and you still eat shellfish. And so you're being inconsistent. But first of all, my response to that is, okay, you're not every Christian knows there's something different about the law or about how we relate to the law. Now that Jesus is here, there's something, something different. So we've got to figure out what that is. Right. It's not. And, and so you've got to think of it in, in that way. But, you know, when you look at these holiness code laws that seem kind of arbitrary, well, you've got to, you've got to understand what is the holiness code for? What's it, what's the purpose of it? Right. It's the idea of it was to um, highlight Israel as a holy, separate, set apart nation. But that's different now that we're in Christ because Christ has fulfilled that. He is the 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 one that makes us a new creation. Right. He sets us apart as a holy nation, so to speak. But anyway, you're you're approaching it. You've got it. You've got to use a consistent hermeneutic from the old into the new. Right. You don't just arbitrarily say that one doesn't apply anymore, but this one does. That one doesn't because I don't like it, but this one does because I do like it. (laughs) Like you've got to think about it more critically. Yeah. Um, James White actually has a whole sermon series on the holiness code from when he was still at Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church that you can find on PRBC sermon audio. It's pretty good. I listened to it a few years ago and uh, Vody Bauckham has a thing. I need to refine this video. I I never found the original video. I just heard it shared on Wretched Radio before, but it was when someone comes up to you and does the whole West Wing thing where they're like, well, how much can I sell my daughter for? Should I stone this person for throwing a football? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, Vody Bauckham's response is, well, you see, it's not that I pick and choose what I believe from the Old Testament. 
it's both of us do because you think murder is wrong you think rape's wrong you think all that stuff's wrong (laughs) so do i but you arbitrarily pick and choose i have a system of thought a hermeneutic throughout the entire bible that leads me to say certain ones i still need to obey and certain ones for just for for just for that time you just randomly pick and choose what you like and what you don't like (laughs) right it's again it's authorities who decides who gets to decide which laws apply and it's and for some people it's it's themselves they are a law unto themselves they're autonomous mm-hmm. the book of judges has things to say about that too <laughs> exactly which we're going to get into well not the book of judges but yeah anyways i think um again going back to one of doug wilson's sayings i think it's really a really good analogy he talks about some of the laws in the old testament and how um he gives the analogy of a a cadet being trained in boot camp. I don't know if you've heard that where um, the the sergeant comes in and he's and they teach you how to fold your your clothes a certain way. And they teach you how to, you know, line up your your bedspread or your, you know, do all these meticulous things that are seemingly it doesn't make sense. Like it it doesn't it doesn't matter, right? But that's not the point of it. The point of the the point of those commands is to get you to obey. So that when you're in the heat of the battle, you're not questioning, right? You're not, you're not questioning, this doesn't matter. Why should I, why should I care about this? I mean, you know, it's, it's obedience. It's obey God, trust him, right? Do what he says. Um, and that'll get you into the framework, the mindset of how do I go forth from here? Which I thought was a really helpful analogy. But Yeah, that's really good. Um, and one thing that helps us really understand where an Old Testament law has been fulfilled by Christ and therefore we're obeying it in Christ rather than still obeying it now and where we still need to still obey is to look at three distinctions, three categories in the Old Testament law that I think is really helpful. The moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. So the moral law, these are the laws of morality in the Old Testament. The things like, you know, different laws with marriage, not being able to marry close relatives, things like that. Those are all still applicable because morality is not just from nation to nation arbitrarily, but morality is what is in line with God himself and then God's will and things like that. And then you have the civil law. These are the laws that govern Israel as a nation at that time. Uh, And that's where the big discussion here is. Um, Really, I think for the most part, people would say the moral law is still applicable and the ceremonial law isn't and the civil laws where the big debate is. So the ceremonial law, these are like the sacrificial systems, the festivals, the things in Old Testament Israel that were really just types and shadows pointing to Christ. And these are no longer applicable because Christ has fulfilled them. We don't need shadows after we have the substance. You know, we don't need to have the day of atonement every year, Yom Kippur pointing to Christ because Christ is our one sacrifice. If you try to still have a day of atonement every year, you're completely contradicting Galatians and Hebrews. Exactly. And yeah, now some of these are still applicable in a way that's been changed. Like now we have the Lord's Supper or communion instead of Passover because at the last Passover before his crucifixion, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. So in some sense, we still do the Passover, but now as the Lord's Supper, Yep. But still in that way, it's kind of been fulfilled. Yeah. It's, it's not even that they've been done away with. It's just they look different, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like like the, we could say we don't have sacrifices anymore. It's like, well, yeah, we do. 
Jesus, Jesus was that. He is that for us. So it, it's just, it's not that it's like, we're, we're done with that now. It's, it just looks different today. Yeah. All of those sacrifices were pointing to Jesus. So now that we have Jesus as the one sacrifice, we, we don't need a priest to go every year. You know, like this is what Hebrews is saying. We don't need a priest going every year and sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. He is the one that all the Old Testament priests, all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. Yep. So because Jesus is our sacrifice, we don't need to still be doing sacrifices every year because that would contradict the message of Jesus one death being sufficient for all because he is the God man. Yep. So that's where it really just comes into the, the moral law. I think we're all pretty much all right with, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. I think we're all pretty all right with those are still applicable. So I think the civil law is where we really get into a lot of the debate. And that's coming back to this idea. I said earlier that, the entire Old Testament system of law is basically just spelling out, giving case laws, which are examples of how you apply the Ten Commandments to a nation. So it's like in Numbers and Exodus and Deuteronomy and all that. It's like God is laying out to Israel what following the Ten Commandments as a nation looks like for that nation at that time. And so that means we we're careful not to just always try to do a one-to-one correlation, but we're looking at the spirit of the law and still as much as possible at the letter of the law without trying to contradict anything. So for example, in the Middle East and ancient Israel, people would cool off on the roof a lot. You know, they didn't have air conditioning two, 3000 years ago. So if you wanted to cool off, you wouldn't stay in your house. Your house would be really hot, just like your car is hot when you leave it in the parking lot in the summer for a few hours. So they would go out on the roof. Well, there's a law in the Old Testament about having parapets, having a fence around your roof. So that way no one goes in or no one goes up on your roof and falls off and gets seriously injured or dies or anything like that. And a side note on that. As far as we can tell, Israel didn't have police going around writing tickets to people for not having a parapet around their roof. You could have a parapet around your roof and you would be sinning because you're breaking God's law, but it wouldn't be a crime unless exactly. someone actually got injured from it. And then you have to pay whatever penalty it is for their yeah, injury. I, I, I don't know what you think about this, but um, there are no victimless crimes. Yeah. I, I, um, you don't like you're saying you don't have police going around policing whether or not you have a parapet around your house. Uh, or if you're, we're going to get into the one about the ox, like if your ox is out, it hasn't done anything, but you know, it's been known in the past to hurt people. So there's no one going to write you a ticket for that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But anyways, yeah, keep going. The sin and the crime distinction is, is a really good, I don't think we're going to get deep into that today, but some good resources on that as well. Yeah. So, you know, today I think for the most part and just about any state, people don't really hang out on roofs anymore. Where I live a little bit further north in the States, we all have angled roofs because we need them for snow to not collapse our house in the winter. So I'm not going to go up on my roof unless I'm fixing a leak or doing something else like that, that I have a reason to go up on my roof. I'm not going up on my roof just to hang out. So I don't need to have a fence around my roof. I'm not trying to do a strict one-to-one correlation from Old Testament Israel to the U.S. today. But if I had an in-ground pool in my yard, I, you know, I don't. But if I did, I would probably want to have a fence around my in-ground pool 
that way one of the neighborhood kids doesn't venture into my yard wanting to go swimming or whatever and fall in and drown. That would be a way where I'm applying the spirit of the law and as much as possible the letter of the law, but to my current situation. I'm applying the Ten Commandments to my life today using God's case law as an example of how to do that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really, really awesome that it we have the commandment, but we also have the help to to kind of get us there. One other thing I wanted to kind of um, just kind of throw in there that I think is, is an interesting thing I've, I've kind of been taught and been thinking about. Um, some people think about applying God's law in a different way. Um, they think about um, it, it. The law is meant to help us cultivate wisdom and the wisdom part, the wisdom and the virtue part should be the thing that drives us, you know, gets us in touch and um, in tune with how God thinks about the world, that kind of thing. And, and not strictly like, okay, what does uh, Leviticus, whatever say, right. And let's figure out how to apply that. So there's this two different ways of thinking, but in my, in my opinion, it doesn't, there's not that much of a difference between those two that I think is they're making it because these laws are meant, they're wise, right? We're, they're good. They're from God. We're, we're supposed to get the wisdom, like you're saying, the spirit of the law out of these things. Um, and that helps us cultivate wisdom. It helps us um, get to the, the core of what these laws are for, which is, um, I think you're going to get into, which is love of neighbor, right? It, it's meant to help us um, apply love for neighbor in the civil sphere. So I think that's, yeah. a, that's a good way to think about it. Uh, trying to find the exact verse, Psalm 119. I think it's around verse 100. Oh yeah, here it is. Psalm 119 verse 99. I have more insight than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. So you're talking about how the law gives wisdom there. And here's the author of Psalm 119. Some say David, some say Daniel. We don't know for sure. But the author of Psalm 119 is saying that He has more insight. He has more wisdom than even his teachers because he delights in the law of God. So that's just something to corroborate to support what you were saying there. I also think it's really interesting that uh, Psalm 119, which I think is the longest chapter in the Bible. um, 176 verses. Is all about the law. It's all about the law. Every single verse. Every single verse is about how good the law is and how much I meditate on the law and how much it's a blessing to the nations. And so, yeah, that should say something. Yeah, every single verse in that psalm says command, law, word, something along that line that refers to scripture. But yeah, so that's a little bit on the uh, civil law and how we kind of think of the civil law still applying today. But a little bit more on this idea of how do we understand the Old Testament law still being applicable today? as far as the New Testament goes, is there New Testament support for still thinking the Old Testament is applicable today? And uh, the answer is, yes, there is. For one thing, just a bit ago, we were I was reading from Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus says that he didn't do away with the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill it, not to abolish it. But we also see Paul kind of taking this assumption that the Old Testament law is still applicable today. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Read there in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. It says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So when you have your ox pulling, uh, threshing your wheat, doing all of that, 
you shouldn't muzzle the ox. He's doing the work for you to get this food. You should let him have a little bit of the food that he's working to provide for you. That's kind of the concept of that. And we see Paul taking that verse, but actually applying it, applying the spirit of the law with that verse to something that's actually a very different example. It's not a one-to-one correlation at all because Paul actually applies it to people, not to animals. And he does this twice in the New Testament. One of the times is in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to look there first. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 8, going through verse 14, Paul says, Am I speaking these things according to human judgment? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Is God merely concerned about oxen? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this authority over you, do not do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this authority, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So Paul there is applying this verse about letting the ox partake in the food that he's helping you to get and not you know, muzzling him so he can't eat the food he's providing for you. Paul applies that to ministers of the gospel and the New Testament, that people should be willing to pay a pastor or a missionary. That way they can focus on the work and get some of the fruit of their labor, get some material fruit from their spiritual and physical labor in ministering the gospel. And even as I kept going in verse 13, Paul used another example from the Old Testament talking about the Levites and the priests the people who perform sacred services and they ate the food of the temple. They got to partake in some of the sacrifices people would come offer. And that would be the food that the priests and the Levites ate. So really in those like six verses there, we saw Paul directly quoting from one Old Testament law and alluding to another Old Testament concept and using them towards this idea that pastors need to be paid today. And then Paul gets to that same idea in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verses 17 and 18, there we read that Paul says, The elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching the word and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So there, uh, kind of just a little bit of a more concise version of what Paul laid out in more detail in 1 Corinthians 9. But I don't want to just stop at verse 18 with 1 Timothy. I want to continue on one verse further to verse 19 because we see there another time that Paul is using something from the Old Testament and applying it today. In verse 19, Paul says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. This is the same thing that Jesus references when he's talking about church discipline. And he says that in the second step of church discipline, after you come alone trying to keep the matter private, really that's 
really the first step of church discipline is your self-counsel. Then the next one is a brother coming to you individually to correct your sin. And then two or three people come. So that way it may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses alluding to the yeah. Old Testament. And here upholding is the for law. the path. Sorry, he's, what? Uphold, he's upholding, upholding Old Testament law. It's not yeah. null and void. And so what Jesus and Paul are referencing there is Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. So what scripture says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, is on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So that was 17 verse 6. And then also a couple chapters later, and Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So we yeah. see this in the Old Testament that don't just go on the evidence of one single witness, have two or three lines of witness, which as Jeff Durbin will say, that could include camera evidence as one form of witness yeah. or different things like that have two or three lines of witness before you confirm a crime against someone and independent all using this. Sorry, go ahead. Independent lines of witness. So you couldn't yeah. have three different, three different people, you know, attesting to the same thing, same event. Like if, I mean, that you would need to make sure it's three different things and not one thing being said by three people. Like it's it, yeah. the, the lines of witness is important. This is really important too. And I, I don't want to get too much on, on a tangent, but it, you see this showing up in American law as well in due process, right? We have due process because of things like this. The Christian worldview says you cannot establish a charge against someone unless you have two or three witnesses, right? You can't, someone just can't come up and accuse you of something and you be beheaded because, mm-hmm. or canceled, I guess, in, in current day speak, um, because of just what one person said, right? Yeah. And that's also based on this idea that as Christians, we believe there is a final judgment. So we would rather someone who is guilty go away free than condemn someone for a crime he didn't commit. We would rather err on the side of caution because we know that God won't have a mistrial. God won't mix up the evidence that everything on judgment day will be accounted for, either paid by Christ on the cross or paid by that person in eternity in the lake of fire. So Christians would want to err on the side of caution with that. And as we see our nation becoming more and more secular, more and more away from Christian values, we're seeing them go from innocent until proven guilty to guilty until proven innocent because they don't believe in a final judgment. They think when you die, you cease to exist. So they'd rather an innocent person be condemned as guilty rather than let a guilty person go away free because there is no final judgment in their eschatology. Yep. God's word. Yeah. When you talk about it like this, it makes what the Bible says that God's law is, is, you know, simply, it's just beautiful. It, it, it's, it's mm-hmm. a, a solid foundation for thinking about civil matters. Yeah. I, I think we're about to wrap up. I want to give an example to think through this as one of the last things. Uh, if you're still not sure about this, think about how just God's law is compared to how just our law is in America. And even a lot of our law in America is was originally, while it's been twisted to some degree, it was originally based on God's law. Even our law in America is so far away and it's probably closer than a lot of other nations. So let's say someone steals $1,000 from you. Well, according to God's law system, once that person's been caught, it's been proven that they did this. 
there was either two or three witnesses or they were found with the money in their possession or they admitted to it, whatever it is, they've been proven guilty. They, under God's law, have to give you that $1,000 back plus 20% interest. So they have to give you $1,200. Well, under American law, if someone steals $1,000 from me and it gets proven, he, what, goes to jail for a month and then spends the next six months after that on probation. So now my taxes have to pay for him to get his three free meals and a cot for a month. And then all the court and legal stuff of him being on probation for the next six months. And I don't get my money back. Where is the justice in that? You've turned one victim into multiple victims. It's not harmony. You're not bringing things back into harmony. You're just expanding on the problem. (laughs) Yeah. And some people will respond to that and they'll say, well, I don't want to see that person who stole a thousand dollars from me because I'm really upset with them and I never want to talk to them again. So I'd rather not get my money back and them go to jail. So that way I don't have to deal with it anymore. Well, actually that's another benefit of God's law because it forces you to reconcile with this person, at least to some degree, you at least have to face them when they give you your money back with the 20% extra as their penalty. So as the restitution, so it actually not only makes restitution monetarily it makes restitution or reconciliation between people yeah Mm -hmm. spiritually yeah and and um well first of all i think it says something about the person like you need to do some checking on yourself if that's your thought process right if if your thought process is you know they need to be put away and i don't ever want to see them again right Mm -hmm. you need you need jesus first (laughs) um and then second so just the idea of reconciliation and, and remediation is, is really awesome. But what if someone posed this to me one time, what if um, that person doesn't have any money to pay back? Right. What if God law actually addresses that too. Exactly. Exactly. You would go, there would be some sort of ser- like servitude. Like you would pay them, you would work for them to, to pay it off. And mm-hmm. that connection between the two is where you get that idea of like, okay, you're going to have to face them. Like, like there's going to have to be some reconciliation there. Right while they're working for you to pay off those debts or, or whatever. So they're, they're, it's all about bringing things back into harmony, which is in, in the grand scheme of things, in the meta narrative of, of the world, that's what God's doing himself, right? And we're called to reflect him. So let's, re, let's mold and shape our laws consistent with what God's word says. Ultimately, the grand narrative, reconciliation with God, right? Redemption, remediation, love for, love for our neighbors, love for God. That is what the law should be about. As Jesus says, um, all the law and the prophets is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what all the law and the prophets is about. So let's figure out how it applies. Yeah. Amen. So uh, I don't know if you have any closing thoughts you want to say, or if you want me to go ahead and wrap up. I'm good. I think this was awesome. This Obviously, this was a crash course. Um, You know, it's kind of a blitz through the, a, sp- a sprint through the forest, but there's a lot of good resources out there. You can dig into this stuff in, in more detail, how theonomy applies to today. So yeah, just kind of get in touch and, and uh, get some good resources. Yeah. So that is the end of this episode. Don't forget to go ahead and check out part two. As soon as that drops, that one will be on Dustin's podcast, which is Christ in Capital. Uh, you need to check out that podcast if you are not already checking it out. It's really good. And they have a lot of good information there. 
So go check that out and subscribe. That way you will get a notification when the part two of this checks out because part two, we will be going more into taxes and how theonomy applies to taxes. And so as we close, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace. Satisfies me Your law is sweet Oh, you said